0: Everybody, I'm Kai Risdell. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us.
1: And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us, everyone. It is Tuesday, November the 21st. Uh, I guess the question of the day, Kai, is have you actually started your holiday shopping?
0: <laughs> Absolutely not. It's not even Thanksgiving. Are you kidding me?
1: Me either. Absolutely but it's not. it's what a lot of Americans are actually doing this week, or at least thinking about doing with great trepidation, I imagine. So we thought uh, it was a good time to do a deep dive on how it got to be this way that we are so consumery. So today we're talking about the rise of the American consumer economy.
0: You have heard me say more than once on Marketplace that spending uh, by or on behalf of consumers accounts for something like 70 percent uh, of this entire economy. Um, but how did it get to be this way? And what was it like before it was this way? This is a history question, which I just kind of love. <laughs> Lewis Hyman is an economic historian at Cornell University. Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you on. Thanks for having us on. So uh, have, uh, I, I suppose it hasn't always been this way, but has it
2: always been this way? Did consumers drive this economy? It has not always been right. this way. <laughs> and we used to live in a world of utter scarcity. So it's a little surprising <laughs> that we live this way now.
1: Oh, say more. Like, well, when was the sort of pivotal turning point?
2: Well, if you want to get big history on this, I usually like to (laughs) start the story in the, (laughs) around the time of the Salem witch trials. So we think of magic as something that's used for world domination today. But in the late 17th century, you know what magic was used for? To find your lost spoon. And so that's (laughs) what actually, what scarcity really looks like. So today we have sporks all around us cluttering up our kitchens. But in the 17th century, the best use of magic was spoon finding. And so I think for me, this illustrates just how scarce everything was. And then, of course, everything changed. Oh, go on, please. Everything changed. You can't just leave us hanging. Okay, Okay. well, it began to change around 1740 in what historians call the Consumer Revolution. It was a moment when we began to figure out how to make more stuff. The Industrious Revolution was proceeding apace. And over the course of the 18th century, by the time of the Revolution, you go from a world where nearly all Americans made their own cloth and something called homespun Mm -hmm. to them buying it in shops. And of course, tea as you may have heard, was an important part of the revolution. The beginning of the 18th century, it was, you know, uh, a luxury good that no one could afford. And by the time of the revolution, everybody had it. So when you tossed it in the harbor, it meant something hmm. to everybody. And so we can see this kind of consumer life being very intertwined hmm. with American life almost from the start.
1: Is Was that uniquely American or was this happening globally? Because I'm thinking this timeline just so happens to align with, you know, sort of industrial slavery and, and low cost of production because of, you know, enslaved labor.
2: Yeah, that's not a coincidence. Um, yeah. So it is a part of this expanding world of sugar and slavery and the expansion of cloth production, although that accelerates in the 19th century. And it is an important part of the story, the story of those who are exploited by these new industrial regimes, but also a time when there's just so much demand for stuff. This is the story of the 19th century, that there is no need to advertise very much because everything you make, you can sell. Hmm. And of course, the story changes in the 20th century when suddenly we have so much stuff, the problem is, how do we sell it?
0: So go on, go on about that for a little bit. Like, what, is there a moment you can point to where um, where that tipped where we have so much stuff that we can't sell it because there's just too much stuff, and, and consumers are driving this economy?
2: I like to point to around 1920 because I think that's the moment when you go from a world where the most expensive, most amazing thing humans had ever sold—that is the automobile. Yeah goes from being something that's sold for cash to being something that's sold on credit. Huh. And, you know, you have the invention of things like GMAC and other kinds of finance companies in the 1920s, not just for cars, but for all the new amazing electrical goods like, you know, vacuum cleaners and refrigerators. And through the 1920s, this boom, this boom that we often call Fordism, where you know, Henry Ford famously paid his workers enough to buy the cars, really ripple through the economy. Um, and it's underpinned by both the incredible productivity of American factories, but also a new ways of lending money to consumers.
1: Yeah, it sounds like there's been a series of moments that kind of tipped us to get to where we are today. But a lot of historians also point to this period coming out of World War II as a very pivotal moment for the American consumer. Why then?
2: As they should, because it was during the Great Depression that American capitalism got very intentionally reconstructed around a very particular kind of consumer. So coming out of the 1920s, we collide that new tidal wave of Goods and credit with the Great Depression. And then the New Deal policies create something called suburbia, the suburban boom of FHA lending that creates homes and in the suburbs that require cars and new kinds of furniture to fill up those houses. And so the new suburbs are funded by credit, you know, through policies initiated by the federal government. And of course, that was a very exclusionary. So when we talk about this post-war consumer, we're really talking about post-war white consumers to a large degree. Although, of course, African Americans participate in very important ways in this new kind of consumer life. It's not a coincidence that so much of the civil rights movement takes place at places that are places to shop, Woolworth lunch counters, mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. or other kinds of places mm-hmm. like that.
0: Hmm. So, so. That gets us roughly to present day. And I guess my question is, um, how much longer
2: can this go on that we just consume everything? Well, I guess until we eat up the whole earth, right? That's yeah. the big question mm. now. Can we consume our way yeah. to the center of the planet? Right. And this question of sustainability is you know, really two questions, right? It's the question is, can we keep making things people want to buy uh, which is one different is a very different question than can the earth sustain all of our consuming? And I think for the first question is, yeah, there's always great new stuff to buy. Um, that's sort of the miracle of capitalism. And certainly I'm glad that my shirts wear out and I don't wearing the same clothes that you know, my grandfather wore in the 1950s. Um, but at the other hand, you know, we should be concerned about, e-waste and all the kinds of environmental side effects from our consumption. Hmm. And of course, there's a question, you know, perhaps even more important of how do we bring up and can we bring up the rest of the world's population to an American standard of living? And it's not clear that we can without destroying the planet.
1: Well, right. Is there a way to have, well, I guess two parts here. Is a consumer driven economy a good thing, in your opinion, And is there a way to have a consumer-driven economy that is environmentally sustainable?
2: Well, I think the question about a consumer-driven economy, and ultimately, I'd much rather consumers benefit from the economy than, I don't know, bankers. Um, although it's not the one we live <laughs> in to a large degree. But I think that, you know, it, that's not really a problem. That's, that's actually kind of the one of the upsides. There's all kinds of downsides to capitalism, but the ability for us to buy air conditioners is not the downside. Um, I think the environmental consequences, however, are really questionable. And even things that seem like they have nothing to do with, you know, trash dumps, Um, like cell phones or computers, you know, those things do end up there, but even their everyday use requires extraordinary amounts of power in data centers that have used water, you use energy, and it's something that we're going to have to reckon with. So even our so-called digital goods, our digital economy are still having very real effects in the world.
0: So, what's the flip side, though, of a consumer-driven economy? I mean, you, you know, you made the joke about bankers because nobody needs bankers to get richer and, and drive more of this economy. But what's the what are the options?
2: Well, the opposite would be something like a producer-driven economy, which is what we used to have, where more of the money flows to businesses that invest in producer goods, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's something where you are investing in machines or organizations in some way that produce more economic value. And, you know, there is an argument to be made that that's more sustainable in the long run, that we are growing the economy more and people are providing a better standard of living, that maybe we shouldn't be spending so much money as consumers, but more spending more money as producers. And certainly you talked about the way in which 70% of the GDP comes from personal spending, well, it was only 60% right at the end of the post-war. And so if we're nostalgic for a kind of post-war economy, well, Hmm. maybe we need to cut back how we spend that money as well, or at least change it. Spitball it for
0: me. What do you think the odds are of that? 0.0%. (laughs) 0.0%. Lewis Hyman is an economic historian at Cornell. Lewis, thanks a lot. I appreciate your um, perspective. It was great. Thanks so much. History matters. That's all I'm going to say. History matters. That was a cool little timeline. Salem
1: witch trials. Right.
0: Right. How about that? Huh. I'll be thinking
1: about that all day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to hear from you all uh, about your own consumer habits and I guess what you trace your uh, family lineage of shopping back to. Uh, how you doing on spoons Uh, meanwhile what have you been buying why have you been buying what you're buying Uh, go ahead and let us know at 508-827-6278 also know as 508 you be smart we'll be right back
0: News is what we have arrived at at this point in the podcast. Kimberly Adams, you go first.
1: I have a very political story that actually has, as usual, an economic angle to it. Um, So yesterday, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals um, put out a ruling that a lot of um, advocacy groups say could basically gut the Voting Rights Act. So it's a decision Um, Out of a case that I'm just going to read here from Politico. The decision originates in a racial gerrymandering case out of Arkansas, where the state chapter of the NAACP and others allege that the state's legislative districts violated the Voting Rights Act by diluting the voting power of black voters. A lower court judge, a Trump appointee, ruled in early 22 that he couldn't decide the case on its merits because he found there was no private right of action, that effectively they had no right to bring the lawsuit. On Monday, the circuit court affirmed that finding. Now, that means that this will probably end up at the Supreme Court and the court is what the court is. And this is going to be really interesting to decide. Now, why does this have an economic issue? Um, this private right of action is the right of private entities to sue the government on various issues. So in this case, suing the state governments um, on their districts and saying that they're violating the Voting Right that Voting Rights Act. Under this ruling, what they're basically saying is that only the federal government can sue or attempt to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And so in CNN's coverage of this, they have a really interesting paragraph. The U.S. Justice Department's voting section, which enforces federal voting laws, simply does not have enough lawyers to, quote, be everywhere in the nation at once, said David Becker, executive director of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. He worked as an attorney in the DOJ's voting section during the Clinton and Bush administration. That's why, quote, for over the course for the that's why over the course of over 50 years, private plaintiffs have also brought these cases so that residents of a small county in Arkansas are just as well protected as the residents of the entirety of the state of California. He added. So. This gets back to government funding, which we've talked about, you know, all this drama on the Hill and these decisions over how much money each agency gets, each department gets, and for what tasks. When you have the rulings like this that actually put more of a burden on the federal government to do enforcement that has previously been, you know, kind of signed off to private entities in large part, then... It requires more money. But is that more money forthcoming? Unlikely in this current environment. So then what happens to the Voting Rights Act? So that just something I wanted to flag.
0: Yeah, it's, it's actually huge. And I'm glad you uh, called it out and I'm glad you highlighted the economic part. I do think we need to just super quickly review that part of your uh, uh, commentary about the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court being what it is. It's important to point out the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act a number of years ago, which required preclearance mm-hmm. from states who have a history of, of um Bias and racism in their voting uh, records. It did very narrowly uphold Section Two of the Voting Rights Act this year on the Alabama uh, congressional districts map. But this is not a court that has high regard for the Voting Rights Act. So,
1: and at least two of the justices. So this is uh, also about Section Two of the Voting Rights right. Act. And I believe at least two of the justices have since uh, have signaled an openness mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. Uh, revisiting this idea of the private right of action. Um, And it's a big deal because if they overturn it for the Voting Rights Act, um, will they overturn it for environmental laws? Mm -hmm. Does that mean that private entities can't sue for enforcement of the Clean Water Act and things like that? This this matters a lot.
0: Yeah, it's huge. It's a big story. It's a big story.
1: What's your news?
0: So cryptocurrency is a fraud. Do not put it in your 401k. (laughs) Do not think that it's ever going to be real money. And that's where we are. I exaggerate, but only a tiny little bit. Um so we all know about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried now comes Changpeng Zhao who is the CEO and founder of Binance, which uh, was until today and and will be for a while until the feds really get it. Um, Binance was the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Chang-Pun Zhao, the founder and CEO, is going to step down and plead guilty to violating criminal U.S. anti-money laundering requirements. It may preserve the company's ability to continue operating, the Wall Street Journal reports, but who knows? So how about that? Fraud is challenging challenging in the world of cryptocurrency i should say i'm not i'm not exactly yeah he is the founder i just want to make sure he was the founder uh yeah this is a big deal this is a big deal crypto we're in crypto winter i don't know what bitcoin's doing today but um oh man this is not a great thing for the credibility of cryptocurrency that's all i'm saying
1: no it is not no No, it is not yeah Hmm.
0: yeah so anyway so there's that Don't put crypto in your 401k, kids, no matter what you hear.
1: Always be true believers, though. No
0: matter what you hear. All right. That's it for the news. Let's do the mailbag.
1: Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. So last week, we asked you to send us your submissions for your state's unofficial cocktail. And we heard from a bunch of you. This is Melinda in Anchorage, Alaska. Our state cocktail would have to be the duck fart, and that is <laughs> Bailey's Kahlua Canadian Whiskey <laughs> in a shot glass. The what? New York cocktail should be the Long Island iced tea. This is Jill from Wisconsin, and I promise you there's not a Friday where I don't end my wonderful work week with a brandy old-fashioned.
0: There are two right. different types of brandy old-fashioned, though. There's
2: sweet. And they're sour.
0: I highly recommend watching Charlie Barron's video of how to do it on YouTube. He's an excellent comedian, and his recipe will produce an authentic Wisconsin-style brandy old fashioned. You can bet I'll be bringing one to Economics on Tap next week. Cheers. There you go. There you go. Holy (laughs) cow. Cheers,
1: everybody. We also heard from Carrie in New York, Carl and Tyler in Wisconsin. As I said, we've been getting lots of submissions, and you know what? There's there's some more exciting things coming down the pipeline on that. So so please keep listening. But for now, do us a favor and keep sending us your ideas. I'm I'm headed to Missouri later today, so maybe I'll get some ideas on a Missouri cocktail uh, as well. Um, but yeah, send us your state's signature cocktail or mocktail if you have one. Uh, Make me smart at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 508 you'd be smart
0: we leave you as we always do with this week's answer to the make me smart question what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about this week's answer comes to us from food journalist francis lamb he's the host of the splendid table podcast and their annual show turkey confidential which is about thanksgiving <laughs> cooking here you go
2: you know what i was wrong about thanksgiving like most americans i always knew what's supposed to go on the thanksgiving table and of course it's got to be turkey So I looked into what was served at the original Thanksgiving. And you know what? There was a ton of venison and fish and corn and birds, yes, but they were probably ducks and geese and there was no turkey mentioned anywhere. Mm. No proof of turkey. There is actually a whole (laughs) fascinating history of how turkey became the featured bird. and It has to do with intentionally inventing a national tradition during the fracturing of the Civil War. But my point is, what we think of as immutable tradition in food, but really in any part of our culture, is almost always not actually the way things have always been. Yeah, that's, the, that's that just That applies good, to so yeah, I many was, That's exactly
0: <laughs> what I was going to say. You just got it out of your mouth faster than I did. <laughs> Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question. where Our number is 5086. Our <laughs> number is 508 827 ubsmart Make me smart is produced by Courtney Berg. Seeker Alan Rothes writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Drew Jostad. Gary O'Keefe's gonna mix it down later. Out of our New York Bureau, our intern is Neil Afarshabandi.
1: Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and marketplaces. Vice President and General Manager is Neil Scarborough. And there we go. I think duck tastes better than turkey, anyway. So much uh, more I'm flavor. Not a big duck guy.
0: Not a big duck guy.
1: It can be very fatty. Yes. I let it drain onto potatoes. Ah. Uh-huh.
0: Oh, that's right, right. Duck (laughs) fat potatoes. Yes, for sure. Exactly. Totally. Totally.